بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين رب اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري وحل العقدة من لساني يفقه قولي اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا علما إن شاء الله today we will start where we left off last week when we spoke about the father of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam Abdullah ibn Abdul Muttalib and how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala saved him from being slaughtered and we spoke about that story last week how the father of Abdullah Abdul Muttalib who is the grandfather of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam how he had vowed that if he had 10 sons that he would sacrifice one of them but then in the end Instead of doing that, he sacrificed 100 camels. And Abdullah ibn Abdul Muttalib, the father of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, was saved. And that is why the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam said, Ana ibn al-Zabihain. I am the son of the two who were about to be slaughtered. And that would be Ismail alayhi salam and Abdullah, the father of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So Abdullah was saved in this way and a hundred camels were sacrificed instead. And when Abdullah grew up, he was the most beloved son to his father. He was the most beloved son to Abdul Muttalib. So when he became of an age where he was ready to get married, Abdul Muttalib wanted him to marry the best woman. So he decided to marry his son to Amina bint Wahab. And Amina bint Wahab, who is the mother of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, she also came from a very pure and respectable and honorable lineage. And she also was from the descendants of Abd Manaf. As we mentioned earlier, that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam and his lineage he is Muhammad ibn Abdullah ibn Abdul Muttalib ibn Hashim ibn Abd Manaf ibn Qusay ibn Kilab. So Abd Manaf was one of the sons of Qusay ibn Kilab, and Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam's lineage goes back to him from the father's side and also from the mother's side. So both Abdullah ibn Abdul Muttalib and Amina bint Wahab, the parents of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, they were from a very high and respectable lineage from the Quraysh and they were both from the children, the descendants of Ismail alayhi salam. So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam was born into the most honorable lineage. His family tree is the most honorable lineage. So when Abdul Muttalib wanted his son to get married, he decided to marry him to Aminah bint Wahab. Now Aminah bint Wahab, she lived with her family in Yathrib. They didn't live in Mecca, they lived in Yathrib. And Yathrib, of course, would later on become to be known as Al-Madinah al-Nabawiyyah, the city of the Prophet wasallam, because that is eventually where he made Hijrah to. But at that time, it was not called Al-Madinah, it was called Yathrib. And that is where the mother of the Prophet Aminah bint Wahab and her family, they used to live there in Yathrib. So when the marriage was agreed upon, Abdul Muttalib 
took his son Abdullah to Yathrib and the marriage took place in Yathrib. So the marriage of the parents of Rasulullah was done in Yathrib. And then after the marriage, they returned to Mecca. So Abdullah with his new wife Amina, they came from Medina to Mecca. And shortly after the marriage, Amina, she became pregnant. And Abdullah, the father of Rasulullah died just a few months into his wife's pregnancy. So when Abdullah ibn Abdul Muttalib died, his wife Aminah bint Wahab was pregnant with Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So the father of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam died even before he was born. So Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam was an orphan even before his birth. Now when the time of the birth of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam came near. Now Aminah she is in Mecca. So when the time of the birth of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam came near, Amina, she saw a dream. She saw a dream that she's giving birth to this boy. And along with this boy, a great light is coming out, an illuminating light that illuminates the earth. And it can be seen all the way up to Busra in Sham. So with this boy, this great illumination is coming out. She also saw in a dream that she was saying about this boy who was being born. So she saw herself making this dua in the dream about this boy, the boy that she was going to give birth to. She saw herself making dua. I seek the protection of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for this boy. I seek the protection of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the one for this boy. From every, from the evil of every jealous person. So even though the Quraysh, they were mushrikeen, they used to worship idols and they used to associate partners with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In her dream, she is seeking refuge in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone for this boy. So these were some of the dreams that she saw near the time that Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam was born. And then on the 12th of Rabi' al-Awwal, in the year of the elephant, Amul Fil. And the Amul Fil, we spoke about that before. That was the year that the incident happened where Abraha came from Yemen to destroy the Kaaba. And how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala destroyed Abraha and his army and he protected his house. He protected the Kaaba. So that was the year where Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam was born. On the 12th of Rabi' al-Awwal, according to the, the most authentic opinion and there is some ikhtilaf on the date of his birth not all of the ulama are agreed that he was born on the 12th of Rabi' al-Awwal but perhaps it is the strongest opinion that he was born on Monday the 12th of Rabi' al-Awwal surely he was born on a Monday but there is some ikhtilaf about the date was it the 12th of Rabi' al-Awwal or another date <coughs> but the most authentic opinion inshallah is that it was the 12th of Rabi' al-Awwal 
So on Monday, the 12th of Rabi' al-Awwal, In'amul Fil, the year of the elephant, the year that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala destroyed Abraha and his army. The greatest man who ever walked on the earth was born. And this happened 50 days after the incident of Abraha and his army. 50 days after Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala destroyed Abraha and his army, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam was born. So this was one of the great events in the history of mankind. The birth of the greatest creation of Allah, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Now, even in his birth, the birth of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, there were amazing incidents that happened. And these were signs from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that this boy is not just a regular boy. There is something special about this boy. So there were many signs, many incidents at his birth that showed that this was someone special. And one of those incidents is mentioned by Hassan ibn Thabit, عن, the poet of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Hassan ibn Thabit. And Hassan ibn Thabit, radiallahu he was seven years older than Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. He was seven years older than the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So when the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was born, Hassan ibn Thabit was seven years old. So he narrates and he remembers this and he witnessed this himself. He said that he was in Medina at that time. Hassan ibn Thabit, he was in Medina. And the Prophet sallallahu was born in Mecca. But Hassan ibn Thabit said, I remember this incident happened when I was seven years old. And he was with the Jews of Medina. And we spoke about how the Jews were settled in Medina. So Hassan ibn Thabit, he was sitting with the Jews of Medina. When one of the monks of the Jews came up and stood on one of their structures and he announced, he said, قَدْ ظَهَرَ الْيَوْمْ نَجْمُ أَحْمَدْ الَّذِي لَا يَظْهَرُ إِلَّا بِخُرُوجِهِ قَدْ ظَهَرَ الْيَوْمْ نَجْمُ أَحْمَدْ الَّذِي لَا يَظْهَرُ إِلَّا بِخُرُوجِهِ And Hassan ibn Thabit, he remembers this incident and he witnessed it personally when he was seven years old in Medina. This Jewish monk climbed up on the structure and he said, Today the star of Ahmad has come out. And it is a star that is never seen and could not be seen until this Prophet comes. And the Jews, they knew about the Prophet ﷺ and they were awaiting a Prophet to come. And their book, the Torah, it had many descriptions of Rasulullah ﷺ in their book. So they knew that a Prophet was about to come. So one day, this man, he climbed up the structure and he said this, Today the star of Ahmad has come out and this star does not come out or would not come out except when this Prophet is born. So that means the Prophet ﷺ has been born. So Hassan ibn Thabit mentions this incident that he personally witnessed himself. Also another sign is that the pregnancy of Amina with Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam was a very easy pregnancy. She didn't have any difficulties or any problems during that pregnancy. It went very easily the whole time. When in usu usually pregnancy is something that is very difficult for a woman. As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, 
حملته أمه كرها ووضعته كرها The mother of insan, the mother of a man carries the baby with difficulty and gives birth to the baby also with difficulty. It's not an easy thing. But the pregnancy of Amina with her son Rasulullah was a very easy pregnancy and she didn't have any type of difficulties at all. Also, it has been said that when Rasulullah was born, he was born already circumcised. Usually when a boy is born, then you circumcise him after his birth. But Rasulullah according to this narration was born already circumcised and he was also born with the umbilical cord already detached. And usually when a baby is born, the doctor or whoever is assisting in the birth, they have to cut the umbilical cord. But Rasulullah was born with the umbilical cord already detached. So born circumcised, born with the umbilical cord already detached. These are some signs that this boy is someone who is special. This is not a normal type of birth. So when the grandfather of Rasulullah when Abd al-Muttalib heard about this, that yes, Amina has given birth, her son has been born, and these were the incidents that took place at his birth. He was born circumcised. He was born with the umbilical cord already detached. Then Abd al-Muttalib, he knew. He knew that this is something special. This is not just an average boy. And he said, Wallahi, inna li ibni hadha lashana. By Allah, surely this son of mine, this boy of mine, is something special and he will have something very special in his future. This is not just a normal boy. So he realized that and he took his grandson and his grandson was not named yet. He was not named Muhammad yet. So he took his grandson and he took him inside the Kaaba. He held him and he took him inside the Kaaba. And he thanked Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for blessing him with this grandson. Now, what about the name of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam? How did he get the name Muhammad? Muhammad was not a name among the Arabs at that time. There was no one named Muhammad. But Abd al-Muttalib, he named his grandson Muhammad. And what is the reason behind this name? Before, Abd al-Muttalib had traveled to Sham, the greater Syria area. Abd al-Muttalib was on a trip to Sham with three of his companions. So Abd al-Muttalib and three other companions of his, of his were there in Asham. And while they were in Sham, they met with a Jewish monk. And they got involved in a conversation. Abd al-Muttalib and his three companions with this Jewish monk. So the Jewish monk asked Abd al-Muttalib and the companions of Abd al-Muttalib, where are you guys from? And then they answered, from Mecca. And then the Jewish monk, who had knowledge of the previous scriptures, he had knowledge of the Torah, and he had knowledge of the religion of Musa alayhi salam. So he said to Abd al-Muttalib and his companions, that place where you are from, the Jazirat al-Arab, a prophet is going to come from there. A prophet is going to come from there. So they said, really? 
what is that prophet's name going to be? What is his name going to be? And then the Jewish monk replied, his name is going to be Muhammad. His name is going to be Muhammad. So from that instant, Abdul Muttalib and those three companions who were with him, they decided, if we ever get any son born in our family, we are going to name him Muhammad in hope that he would be that messenger. So they all made this intention that the first son that would come in their family, they would name him Muhammad. Now Abdul Muttalib, he was old and he was not going to have any more sons. So he decided instead to name this name to his grandson. And the other three companions of Abdul Muttalib, when they had a son, they also named their children Muhammad. And Abdul Muttalib, he named his grandson Muhammad. So that is how he got the name of Muhammad. And surely he did become the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And it was a name that was not used by the Arabs. Nobody had this name. But Abdul Muttalib, he gave this name to his grandson Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. There were also some other great events, amazing incidents that happened when the Prophet ﷺ was born. One of those incidents was that the fire in Persia that was worshipped by the Majus, the Majus, they were the fire worshippers, and they had a fire that they used to worship. When the Prophet ﷺ was born, that fire extinguished. Also, a great earthquake rattled Persia and rattled the palace of the Kisra who was the king of Persia and he was the most powerful king in the world at that time the Kisra of Persia so this big earthquake hit Persia it hit his palace and the palace was damaged and 14 balconies of that palace fell down 14 balconies of that palace fell down also, there was a lake that the Persians used to consider holy. And the name of that lake was Sawa. And when that earthquake happened, the earth from underneath that lake opened up and the river disappeared as well. That river or that lake was obliterated. So they lost that lake. The palace was damaged. 14 balconies fell down and the fire that the Majus used to worship that was also extinguished. So these are some of the things that happened when the Prophet ﷺ was born. And the Kisra of Persia, seeing all of this, he got scared. He got worried. What's happening here? These things happening all at the same time. The fire is extinguished. The balconies of the palace fall down. The lake disappears. This is something. He was afraid. So he called the fortune tellers to consult them about what is this? What is going on here? <coughs> and these fortune tellers, some of them used to have connections with the jinn. Some of these fortune tellers, they used to have connection with the jinn. And as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions about these fortune tellers and the jinns that they used, that these jinns, they used to go up into the sky and they used to try to eavesdrop to listen to any information that is being relayed there in the skies. 
And then they would come down to earth and they would give this information to the fortune tellers and the fortune tellers would give this information to the people. And this was a big fitna, this fortune telling. So the fortune tellers came to the Kisra when he called them to come and he asked them, you know, what, what is the meaning? What is the significance of these incidents that have happened? The fire has been extinguished. This big earthquake came. The lake is gone. 14 balconies have fallen down from our palace. What is the significance of this? So the fortune tellers told him, it means that there is a Nabi coming, that there is going to be a prophet. A prophet is coming. And then the Kisra said, okay, so what about the 14 balconies that fell down? What is the significance of that? And they told him that it means that there will be only 14 more kings in your empire. There will be 14 Kisras. And after the 14th one, the kingdom of Persia, the Persian empire will be gone. You have 14 left in your line of kingship. 14 people. So then the Kisra, he felt a little bit relaxed. He felt comfortable. He said, oh, 14? 14 kings? Okay. That's still a long time. That's still a very long time. But what happened when the Kisra died, when this Kisra died, the other members of the royal family, they fought over the rule. It was not a peaceful transition of power. So in the next four years, there were 10 kings. In the next four years, there were 10 kings out of those 14. So the time was coming very near. Now, back to the Quraysh and back to the birth of the Prophet the habit of the Quraysh is that they wouldn't like to raise their children in Mecca from a young age. They wouldn't, let, they wouldn't want them to have their initial upbringing in the city of Mecca itself. Rather, they would send them out into the desert so that they could grow up there. And there were many reasons for this. One of the reasons was that Mecca was a place where people from all over used to come. People from all different lands, they used to come to Mecca for Hajj. And many of those people, when they would come to Mecca and do Hajj, they wouldn't leave. They would just stay there. Now these people, they were from different backgrounds, they were from different cultures, and they spoke different languages. They spoke different languages. But when they were settling themselves in Mecca, they had to learn Arabic. So they learned it, but they were not that fluent in it. So that affected the actual people of Mecca as well. The fact that there were so many outsiders who didn't speak Arabic fluently staying in that city, it affected the locals as well. The children, when they would grow up, they would have to associate with all of these people who come from all over the place with different languages. So they would try to speak to them in Arabic, but they would have broken Arabic. So the children, they would also learn this broken Arabic as well. So those children who grew up in Mecca, their Arabic was not as strong. So the Quraysh, to prevent this problem from happening, when they would have sons, they would prefer to send those children outside of Mecca, in the middle of the desert, so that they could grow up there with the Bedouins, and they could learn proper grammatical Arabic, Fusha, the beautiful, pure language of Arabic. So they would send their children outside for this purpose. This was one of the purposes. Another one of the purposes was that life 
in the city is different than life outside in the rural areas or in the desert. People who grow up in a city, usually they grow up pampered and they become soft when they grow up. So they didn't want their sons to grow up pampered and soft like that. They wanted their children, their sons to develop this toughness like real men. So they thought it was better to send them outside into the desert so that they can have a little bit more of a difficult life. And they would grow up being tough and they would grow up as real men. So this was another one of the reasons they would send their children outside of Mecca. So for the language to become tough. And the third reason was, like we said, so many people from different lands would come into Mecca and with them, they would bring different types of illnesses and different types of diseases. So the people staying in Mecca, they would get sick a lot. So to, pro so to protect their children from being exposed to these type of illnesses, they would send them away. And you know, some of these things are still true about Mecca today. There are so many people from outside who are there in Mecca. And I have witnessed this myself. Sometimes some of the Arabs, the Saudis, when they're speaking to the people who are there from different countries, they will speak to them with broken Arabic. Even though they know Arabic properly, they will still speak with them with a broken form of Arabic so that it's easy for them to understand. So with this happening all the time, it, it really affects the total level of the language of the people. Also, the sicknesses, of course, especially during Hajj time, so many people are coming in and you'll see a lot of different people with different types of sicknesses in Mecca during the days, especially of Hajj. So we can see where the Quraysh were coming from and why they would send their children outside to have their initial upbringing. And then, you know, <coughs> when they would grow up to a certain age, they would, of course, come back into Mecca. So there were people from those deserts who would come into Mecca every once in a while to search for children whose parents wanted to send them out into the desert. So these women would come, they would come into Mecca searching for parents who have small children who want to give their children to be brought up in the desert. And these women, they would also provide milk for these young children because the mothers are sending them away. So they're not going to be with their mother, but they still need their milk. So there would be these women from the deserts who would come to Mecca to take these children back into the desert and they would also provide them with their milk. Now, it was from the custom of the Arabs that they would not agree upon a fee. Like when these women would come from the desert and come into Mecca and take the children and give them milk and bring them up in the desert, they would not agree on a fee for this service with the parents because they would consider this is something that is inappropriate. You know, we're providing milk for the children and we're taking money for the milk. This is not good. They didn't think that that was culturally acceptable or appropriate. So they would not agree upon any type of fee for this. But it was understood that after the period was up and when they would bring the children back to their parents in Mecca, that the father would give these women some type of a gift or some type of, of uh, a token of their gratitude. And they would actually give them some money. This was the habit and this was what was understood would happen. Even though 
initially they would not agree upon a set fee. So these women, they would come from the desert and they would do this in, in order to earn a living. You know, those, those women who were living in the, de <coughs> in the deserts and their families, they were very poor. So they would come into Mecca and take these children as a way to earn a living. So once, when the Prophet ﷺ was born, the women from Bani Sa'd, they came from the desert to Mecca to get the children to take into the desert, to provide them with their milk and to bring them up in the desert. So a group of women from Bani Sa'd and amongst these women was a woman named Halima, Halima al-Sa'diyya. So they came into Mecca searching for these young boys to take into the desert to bring them up. Now Halima and her husband Al-Harith, they were very, very poor. They were very, very poor. And Halima, she had her own son. She had a son herself who was around the same age as Rasulullah So she thought, okay, I will provide milk for my son and I will provide milk for another boy I get from Mecca as well. But the thing is <coughs> that <coughs> Halima was so poor and because of her poverty, she didn't have much to eat. She didn't have much nutrition herself. So she didn't even produce enough milk to take care of her own son. Because she was so hungry herself, she wasn't even producing enough milk to fill up her own son. But because she was so poor and she needed a way to earn some money, she still decided to go into Mecca and try to find a boy that she could take with her as well. And hopefully with Barakah, she would be able to feed her son and she would be able to feed this boy as well. So the group of women from Bani Sa'ad, they come into Mecca and each one of them, they find parents who want to give their son to be, to be brought up in the desert and many of the women they go back with a boy but as for Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam his mother was trying to find someone who would take him as well but everybody refused <coughs> everybody refused to take Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam and this was because he didn't have a father so they thought to themselves you know, when we bring these boys back, the father is the one who gives us the money. This boy doesn't have a father. So what are we going to get for taking care of him? Yeah, his grandfather is there, his mother is there, but they are not going to be able to take care of us as if his father was alive. So they were afraid to take him because they thought that they wouldn't get anything out of it. So Rasulullah <coughs> was left and the women, they went back into the deserts with other boys who were born around the same time. Now Halima, she came into Mecca as well. But she came a little bit later than the rest of the, of the women from Bani Sa'ad. And that was because, as we mentioned, <coughs> she was very poor and the donkey that she had that she used for transportation. It was an old and it was a weak and very slow donkey. So she came later than the rest of them. And when she came, <coughs> at first she didn't take Rasulullah either. And they didn't find anyone else. Halima and her husband, they didn't find any other boy to take. So they were leaving Mecca. 
And when they were on the outskirts of Mecca, Halima said to her husband, Al-Harith, she said to him, all of the other women, they took boys. But we came into Mecca, now we're going to go back without anything? You know what? I think we should go back into Mecca and we should take that boy. We should take that orphan boy. And perhaps Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will give us some barakah. Perhaps there will be some blessing in taking him and we will be taken care of as well. Let's just go and let's take him. So she made this decision which turned out to be the best and smartest decision in her life. And they went back and they took Rasulullah and they took her, they took him back into the desert. Now the signs of the greatness of this baby were immediately visible. Like we mentioned when Halima came from the desert into Mecca, she came very slowly because her donkey was so weak and slow. Now going back from Mecca to the desert on that same donkey with Rasulullah that donkey is going faster than any of the other animals from the other people who were in Mecca who were going back as well. Now Halima's donkey is getting ahead of all of them. Such to the extent that they, they asked her, is this the same animal that you came in on? Is this the same animal that you came in on? And she said, yes, it's the same one. And then they said, Wallahi, there is something special about this. This is not normal. So that was the first sign of the barakah. Going from Mecca back into the desert with such speed on this donkey that was previously so slow. Also, Halima, who didn't have even enough milk to take care of her own son, now that she has Muhammad with her, she has more than enough milk to take care of her son and Rasulullah and fill both of them up. So these were the signs of the barakah of Rasulullah that came with him into that family, the family of Halima al-Sa'diyah. So Rasulullah grew up, he grew up in the desert with Halima al-Sa'diyah and there were so many incidents and beautiful things that happened to him while he was there. And inshallah we will talk about those incidents in our next session bi-ithnillah next week. Wallahu a'lam wa sallallahu wa sallam wa baraka ala nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Ahem. <coughs> <coughs>